When you're trying to figure out if that old nuclear manufacturing facility you grew up across the street from had any impact on your health or the health of your neighbors, and once you start to investigate, you discover... I went around door to door, and in one community, there was a street that had 16 homes. There were eight homes in a row that all the women had breast cancer. When you learn information like that, it's clear that you are in the seat we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I am the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, We look at what it takes to force corporate nuclear interests and the government to fulfill their obligations to local communities to clean up a radioactively contaminated site. One woman who has made this happen is our guest, Patty Amino, who talks about her now 29-year battle to force a cleanup of the Numex site in her hometown of Apollo, Pennsylvania, as well as the spectacular court decision mandating a $350 million Army Corps of Engineers FUSRAP cleanup. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, nuclear news from around the world, and, as Harvey and Irma just showed us, more honest nuclear information than we will ever get from utility companies in the path of a hurricane. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, September 19, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In the wake of Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, there are questions, big questions that remain about the nuclear reactors that were in the pathway. Even conservative mainstream media Newsweek on Newsweek.com cited Florida Power and Light, the operators of Turkey Point and St. Lucie, for failing to bring Turkey Point up to federal safety code and long-known concerns about the danger faced by nuclear power plants during power outages. The Turkey Point nuclear reactors sat in the midst of a region with 5 million power outages, an unprecedented number even according to Florida Power and Light's CEO. Yet, The reactor kept operating even though the risk of a serious accident rises significantly in a power outage, according to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Unit 3 was shut down, though not as far in advance as we were promised by Florida Power and Light. And Unit 4 went into a scram, a screeching on the brakes immediate shutdown from high power, in this instance 88%, down to zero. Florida Power and Light 
tried to claim it as a manual shutdown, meaning they made a decision and they were in control of the situation. But a reporter from World Nuclear News, one of my favorite targets, but this time they did the right thing, they contacted plant operators and got the information on how the plant had auto-scrammed itself. That meant FPL was fully ready to keep running that thing, even though the hurricane was bearing down upon it. Now, the Newsweek article points out that Florida Power and Light failed to bring the plant up to federal safety code and long-known concerns about dangers faced by nuclear power plants during power outages. Peter Bradford, a Carter administration appointee to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, questioned the decision to keep one reactor operating, saying perhaps they wanted it up for bragging rights in the nuclear industry's ongoing search for subsidies based on high reliability. And Maggie Gunderson, guest on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat, was also interviewed here where she again said, it's just absolute hubris and a huge risk to the population. Speaking of which, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out of week. The Environmental Protection Agency's RADnet monitors are intended to give real-time ratings of gamma radiation at 130 testing sites around the country. Always good to know if your neighborhood nuclear reactor is leaking radiation into the environment, ya think? Which is why it seemed odd, let's use a neutral word, odd, that radnet monitors for South Texas suddenly went offline right after Hurricane Harvey, on September 7. Even odder, the very next day, September 8, all five Florida RADnet monitors, Jacksonville, Miami, Orlando, Tallahassee, and Tampa, suddenly went offline and remained offline, just in time for none of them to be able to provide readings during Hurricane Irma. Included during this time was the emergency scram shutdown of Turkey Point 4 on September 10, steam which is believed to have tritium in it, and thus released into the environment. Now, the EPA said nothing about this outage until after criticism of their lack of action and lack of availability of RADnet began appearing online. Finally, on Tuesday, September 12, they posted a message on their site which read, Due to maintenance, the RADnet air monitoring data will be temporarily frozen to September 8, 2017. We are working to resolve the issue. Now note the wording. At the beginning, they say, due to maintenance, which implies that they plan to turn the machines off so that they could do maintenance. But at the end, they say, we are working to resolve the issue which implies that an unexpected problem or emergency came up that needed to be handled. So what is it, dudes? Maintenance or an issue? And while you're at it, could you make up your minds whether it was an auto-scram, meaning the system did it by itself, as is believed by many, or a manual scram, meaning an operator had his, probably not her, hands on the controls and went, hey, better turn this thing down. The industry is claiming that it was a manual scram because that implies they had some kind of control. But all of the experts on our side said, nah, they lost power for a nano. That was enough to shut the thing down automatically. 
meaning the machines were thinking better than the humans were. As for the data being frozen to September 8, does that mean they have the data and just can't post it? That they're doing maintenance and have to take it down while dusting around the edges and scrubbing the stats? Are they cooking the numbers? Or is there an issue? And if so, what's the issue with the monitors this time? And that's why EPA's IRMA cover-up, I mean loss of RADNET radiation monitoring network, is this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. We'll continue to cover the follow-up on the six nuclear reactors involved with Harvey and Irma. And meanwhile, here comes Jose and here comes Maria. A prudent regulator would look at those and say, it hits Category 3 and it's on track to make landfall near our nuclear reactor. Shut them down in advance. Better be safe than sorry. In other U.S. reactor news, last month, August, federal regulators found two violations related to cybersecurity at Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station in Massachusetts. In both instances, staff performance was at fault. These are employees of Energy Corporation. NRC spokesman Neil Sheehan said the nature of the cybersecurity-related violations, along with the actions taken to correct them, are considered sensitive information and therefore not publicly disclosed. But David Lockbaum, director of the Nuclear Safety Program for the Union of Concerned Scientists, said, These are the same kinds of problems that Pilgrim is having on the equipment side. They just don't do the corrective actions. Pilgrim is officially classified by the NRC as one of the three worst nuclear reactors in the country, only one step above a mandatory shutdown. Why they delay on this, nobody knows. And the European Parliament warned against easing health controls imposed on food products imported from the Fukushima region in Japan, specifically citing rice, mushrooms, fish, and other seafood. There's a lot more news, and we'll catch up next week, hurricanes permitting. Now here's this week's featured interview. Never doubt that a single motivated individual can have an enormous impact against the numbnuts of the nuclear industry. And that's what this week's guest is all about. Patricia Amino, and that's the last time we'll use her formal first name, grew up in Apollo, Pennsylvania, 35 miles northeast of Pittsburgh, not realizing that her childhood home was directly across the street from the Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation, or NUMEC, in Parks Township, Numec manufactured fuel for commercial nuclear power plants and the Navy's nuclear submarines, leaving behind a legacy of uranium and plutonium waste that has impacted the health of everyone in that area, not the least of whom was Patty. She is also a U.S. Navy veteran with over 10 years of experience, including Naval Investigation Service, She's a former U.S. federal criminal investigator with the Department of Defense and other federal investigative agencies. And she's done postgraduate studies at Chapman Institute and UCLA in criminal justice. The nuclear industry messed with the wrong woman. Listen to 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 the amazing story story of one one individual individual tenacity, courage, focus, and stamina has been able to accomplish against the hydra-headed monster that is the nuclear industry. Patty Amino, 
Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Glad to be here, Libby. Where did you grow up and what was the area like? Apollo, Pennsylvania. It was basically a really small town of about a little over 1,800 people, maybe 2,000 back then. And it was made up of blue-collar families that either worked in steel mills or in the mines or in the foundries. It was just the 50s and the 60s. Those were really big days of innocence. And Apollo abuts other towns and across the river from other towns in very close proximity. And so they're uh, one of the hubs within the Kiski Valley. And the Kiski Valley is comprised of 13 communities. And you grew up here. You knew everybody in those 13 towns around. When did you become aware of NUMEC, which stands for Nuclear Materials and Equipment Corporation? And how close to their facility did you live? I grew up directly across the street from the plant, unknowingly across the street from a nuclear plant, and uh, because it was an abandoned steel mill. And back in the day when I was, you know, coming up as a child, Numec got in there in 1957, and all we heard that um, it was an industry that was making fuel for Navy ships. The word nuclear, radiation, or atomic never uh, came into, you know, the purview. But when I really first became aware of it is uh, was in December of 1988 when I came back home after retiring out from the United States government. So the entire time you were growing up, you had no awareness that you had a nuclear facility next door. Did you have any sense of what they were doing with their waste material or you just kind of played innocently throughout the area? The kids would do what kids would do. I left the area at the age of 17 and I came back after I graduated from high school and I came back intermittently. I went into the Navy and I served for over 10 years, got out on a disability. And when I was in the Navy, I worked with Naval Investigative Service which used to be called NIS. It's now fondly referred to as NCIS. And uh, I got out and I came back to the area, but I wasn't in the valley. I went up to Indiana, Pennsylvania, and I used my GI Bill and I furthered my education. And uh, then I got picked up by the Defense Department as a federal criminal investigator. And so I was assigned in different parts of the United States, the last place being Southern California. What brought you back to that area, you said, in 1988, and when did you start becoming aware that there was a problem with the NUMEC facility or what was left of it? It was kind of twofold. My dad started getting ill, and then I wasn't feeling all that great, so I wanted to get closer to home. I had the time and service. I just retired out and came back home in December of '88. What gave you the first awareness that there was a problem with NUMEC? My dad. It was maybe just a couple days after I got home in December of 88. And he said, Patty, he said, "Um, look, uh, you retired out from the government. He says, you do investigations. Could you find out for me and for some of the other people in the town what's going on over at the plant? I said, what do you mean what's going on over at the plant? And he said, well, that's a nuclear plant. And that was the first time I ever heard the word nuclear referred to that site. I said, really? And he said, yes. He said, and 
The company isn't telling us anything. And I says, well, data company's not going to tell you anything. They're going to protect their own liability. And he said, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission isn't telling us anything either. And again, I was so naive coming out of the government thinking that that was just a communication breakdown. He said, that place had a lot of stacks. And some people were saying that maybe it came one off site. My dad retired out from the steel mill directly across the street, less than 100 feet uh, is where I grew up and where the deli that was attached to the house was located. And so a lot of those workers would go into the deli with their work clothes on. And my dad wanted to know, and he had every right to know, and so did everybody else in the town. In other words, if there was any residue perhaps on their clothing that they may have been depositing in the store or in your local area? No, because of the stacks, 124 stacks. When I started getting the documents, I was uh, jaw-dropped at the amount of stacks that that plant had. Let's roll this back to how you began your investigation of the site now that it's 1988 and your dad has made you aware that there may be some problems there. After my dad made me promise to look into this, I found out that the plant was undergoing a decommissioning and that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission had put documents, uh, considered it a public document room, in the town library. So I would go up there, and these documents were on microfiche, and and, uh, they had one of these old dinosaur viewers that you would just have to sit there hours on end to look over them. Fortunately, this viewer had a printer on it as well. And so I was able to acquire some documents, and those documents really tweaked my interest because there was one, the very first document I ever read was a 1957 document, and it was pre-startup report that the company had an outside contractor to do. And this contractor went out and around the town and took sampling so that they would have a baseline of what the radiation levels were prior to this plant starting up. And on page four, there was just a two-sentence paragraph. And the contractors were telling the company and highly recommended that the plant carry on with regular testing in the unrestricted areas for the future potential of any changes in state and federal laws and regulations and for the potential of litigation. That was a very big flag to me. It sounds like they were anticipating that there would be radiation or other forms of toxicity released and that there would be lawsuits down the road. Is that what you got from this two-sentence paragraph? Absolutely, that they were dealing with something that would cause them a problem, and more than that, that would cause a problem for the people in the community. Having gained this information... How did you proceed? What actions did you take and how did you begin to build this case? Well, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was having in Apollo what they called exit meetings and the company would be there. A couple times I wanted to ask the company managers uh, some questions, but the Nuclear Regulatory Commission would not allow the company to answer questions. And I thought this very odd. It really appeared that they were shielding. They were the buffer 
it didn't sit well. And then I noticed that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, when anybody in the community would ask about different levels of uh, radiation that they would find or what type of testing they were doing inside of the plant, they would come back and they would mix their formulas. They would mix rotogens with Beckwills, with Picacuries per gram. This, they, they would mix this all up. And the people of this area are working class. And so the level of communication that the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was bringing forth to the general public was intimidating them. They didn't know what they were speaking about. And the NRC did that on purpose. Yes, they do. The entire industry does, because if we can't understand the quantities they are talking about and how they are measuring them, it makes us feel inadequate to the task, and we tend to back off, and they've achieved what they want to achieve, which is totally obfuscating the information that we so dearly need to know. When you saw that there was this kind of a blockade to the information, with you being a trained researcher, investigator, what did you do to start tracking down the truth? Well, I started getting more documents. My brother-in-law worked at that plant, and those guys were threatened with prison if they would have said anything about anything regarding what they did at that facility. And so he didn't want to, he wouldn't talk to me. The mindset that the company was putting out to their workers was that any questions, uh, the public could jeopardize their jobs. The workers had no idea that they were going to be without jobs. The, the company blew smoke up their backside saying that they were just doing a cleanup. They were decommissioning and stopping one operation, going to do another operation you know, to come in. They were totally blind with this. Part of the decommissioning, there was a contractor that was located in town, and Pauline was a whistleblower. She had her own company called ECO, the Environmental Compliance Organization. And I used to pick Pauline's brain, but she wasn't the only one. Over the course of years, I have had the benefit of fantastic people like the late Dr. Alice Stort, the late Dr. John Goffman, the late Dr. Mancuso. Uh, who lived right in Pittsburgh, Dr. Arjun Makayajani, who was one of our experts in the first federal civil action that I spearheaded. You're gathering this information together. Once you got the documents and you started being aware that there was a problem here, what were some of the early actions that you took to start building a case or at least investigating further? Some of the people were coming to me because they knew I was retired out from the government, and I would go to these meetings. But then I had some people coming to me and telling me that their dog, five years old, dying of cancer. And I noticed one day just driving around, there were two, you know, in the small town, there were two people walking their dogs at different locations in the town, and they both had visible tumors, visible tumors all over these, these dogs. And so I went around to uh, some of the vets and just asked them if they had noticed any incidents or increases in cancers in the dogs and the cats and any other animals. And they said it was very striking increase in cancers in these animals. From there, I went to the funeral homes 
and I asked the funeral home directors about how many cancers they were seeing. Was there a significant amount of cancers? And they concurred. There was a significant amount of cancers and cancers in children. And that made me take a foot. I went around door to door. And in one community, Oklahoma, there was a street. And that's up over the hill across the river is 200 feet from Apollo. And that's up on the hill. There was a street that had 16 homes. There were eight homes in a row that all the women had breast cancer. Wow. Yeah. That was very striking to me. It was worse. And that was just the Apollo area. I went down to the Parks Township area where we had the plutonium facility. Here's this plutonium facility, and it abutted a dairy farm. I constantly was thinking, does this milk do a body good? I remember being able to see years ago the dairy cattle sitting out there because I would ride with my dad out of Apollo into Leechburg, uh, where he worked at. And I just you know, remember those dairy cattle and not paying attention to what the other buildings were there. You just didn't know. And nobody suspected because there wasn't a fence around that facility. There weren't placards. There were no cautionary signs, nothing that nobody would ever talk about, any warning. Once you were collecting this information, what actions did you start taking on it? I kept asking to have some off-site testing. Who were you asking? I asked the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at some of the exit meetings if they could please do some off-site testing to allay any fears, concerns, or questions that the general public would have concerning any possible admissions from that plant that may have escaped that plant. And the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, joined with the manager of the company, continuously stated that everything was perfectly safe and nothing went over the fence. Right. And it was at that meeting that a woman by the name of Fran Munko stood up, just a housewife, Fran, stood up and asked the NRC manager at the time, it was a gentleman by the name of Jerome Roth, didn't you do some testing off-site? We saw you down at the riverbank. Could you tell us, did you find any contamination? And he is doing the NRC dance move of mixing all the different formulas together and just giving her a bunch of over highly technical gobbledygook. Mm-hmm. And so I saw Fran just kind of wilt down in her seat. But then she got back up again and she said, excuse me, I didn't understand what you said. Could you just answer the question? Yes or no. Did you find any contamination off site? And then my trigger got pulled because that NRC official told her to sit down and shut up. (gasps) That she had already had her question. That was all she wrote for me. What did you do at that point? Any civil decorum that I had, it left the door. Uh, It exited. And my voice can bellow quite a bit. I have no doubt. And from the back of the hall, I said, you cannot talk to these people this way. You're a public servant. These people have questions, and you're required to give them the answers. And, you know, they basically closed the meeting up at that particular point, and I left out of there 
I was getting pissed. What did you do with that energy? What I started doing after that was to raise the public awareness. I knew that the company had the workers hogtied and scared about ever talking and that the public was so trusting of our government. And so I was going out, was wearing sandwich board signs on my torso and carrying one in each hand saying honk if you want to be safe and DEP protect the people, not the industry. And I was calling, I was asking for an investigation. It meant raising awareness and it meant asking as an investigator what we know of is called the peak attention questions. Asking the questions and for the most part with the documents that I would have, I already had the answers. I wanted to hear what they said in public. And what were they saying in public? They were evasive. They wouldn't answer. They would continue on with the spill that everything is perfectly safe. Everything is perfectly safe. Then I went to a council meeting in Apollo and tried to get the fathers of the town to try to mandate or request the state to do off-site testing. Now, at this time, I was already diagnosed with one of my brain tumors. And there were a lot of incidents of brain tumors in that small town. And so I asked them, I said, look, we are a government that is based on a check and balance system. I understand and sympathize with the company's right to withhold any information. However, a lot of people in this town, including myself, is somewhat skeptical of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. So could we then ask as a body, a governing body, for the EPA to come in and do some tests as a check and balance system. The manager of that plant was there. His name was Joe Sapika. He came to me and he said, Miss Amino, if you would like to pay for all the cleanup costs and the delays that would occur therefrom, then go ahead. He uh, attempted to intimidate me. Well, the council took a break for an executive session on this issue. And Joe Sapika called me out into the hallway and he said, look, we haven't been formally introduced. I think I came off on some bad footing. My name is Joe Sapika and I'm the manager of the plant. And I said, yes, I know. He said, we did a lot of business at your mom and dad's deli over there. I said, well, they appreciate it, and you got your money's worth. You didn't bring me out here to talk about my mom and dad's deli. What is it that you wish to speak about? And then he went on to tell me that what I was doing was not healthy for me. And I looked at him. I said, what the hell did you just tell me? He said, what you're doing is not healthy for you. And then the council came out of the office, and then Mr. Sapika turned and said, well, the document you want, it should be up in the public document room. And that was more fuel on my fire. I don't get intimidated. It just makes me angry. And we're up to what year here? 1992. So we're in 1992, and you've come as far as it sounds like being threatened by the yes. manager of NUMEC. I don't take kind of threats. And so I started looking into Mr. Joe Sapika. And then under Title 10 of the Code of Federal Regulations, it's quite distinct of what 
the minimum requirements are in order to be a nuclear plant manager, i.e., for the Apollo plant, which was a uranium hexafluoride facility, there was a minimum requirement of a Bachelor of Science degree in the nuclear or technical field and 10 years minimum of experience in the same. For the plutonium facility, it was the same in education, but 15 years experience in the nuclear or technical field. Now, understand, they only had one manager for both facilities. When I looked him up, he only had a Bachelor of Arts degree, and his only prior experience was that of being co-owner with his brother in a hardware store that went belly up in Monroeville, Pennsylvania. That was all she wrote. Then I started really firing up the Nuclear Regulatory Commission at that point. He didn't get fired. Here's what the NRC did. I had to embarrass the NRC in front of television cameras to do something, and what they did They issued a notice of violation, but then they changed his title and still kept him there and and credited him with seven years experience. Not surprising. We'll have our second interview with the amazing activist Patty Amino in just a moment. But first, Nuclear Hot Seat meets its monthly financial obligations through the support of listeners like you. Whether you can help with a one-time donation or a monthly sustaining donation of any amount, it all helps to keep up the flow of honest, verifiable nuclear information. So what can you do to help us out this week? A donation that's the equivalent of a cup of coffee, just $5, is enough to support our social media outreach for a week, or go towards many of the online services that we have to engage with. So be it the equivalent of a cup of coffee, or a more substantial financial meal, please give what you can by going to NuclearHotSeat.com and clicking on the big red Donate button. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. And now, back to our interview with the indomitable activist, Patty Amino. So, you've got an area where there is a peak of cancer showing up in children, breast cancer in women, tumors in dogs, additional cancers showing up through the mortuaries and the people who have died. You've got all of this evidence that you are accumulating. Give us a sense of how the years went by while you were working at it, because we're only up to 1992 at this point. Well, let me take you then to 1993. I had been working with Congressman John P. Murtha, and I got tired, and I asked him, because when we would go to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and, and ask a question, they would pawn it off and say, that's not our jurisdiction, that's the State Department of Environmental Protection's jurisdiction. Go to the state, they would come back with us, that's not our jurisdiction, that's the EPA's. I'm not going to chase my tail. So I went to Congressman Murth and I said, we need a meeting to have a representative from all these agencies here so they can't continuously pass the buck. And that's exactly what happened. Six months down the road, Congressman Murth got us that meeting. And that meeting was advertised in the paper for three days to have time limitations. Now, under Robert's Rules of Order, that's about three to five minutes. You give me three to five minutes, I'm going to do some damage. But when we got into the meeting, you signed, as always, signed in. Then they asked us to take a number. And I said, what are you doing here? You give a raffle away at an environmental meeting? And they said, no. When your number's called, you get one question and one question only. I was off the hook. That was it. They did an unannounced, unadvertised change-up that was completely out of line. 
And then I noticed that there was police in the meeting. Never before they had police at the meeting. An hour and a half before that meeting, I had a phone call from the company's Backhawk and Wilcox's attorney. He said, I understand you have some documents. And I said, I do. He said, would you be interested in meeting with me so we can go over those documents and so we can negotiate through them? He said the key word, negotiate. And so I, I told him, I said, I'd love to meet with you and discuss documents. However, I have a meeting I have to go to. He said, yes, yes, I know, I know. I said, but uh, if you really want to know about these documents, he says, yes, I do, I do. I said, I suggest you pick the paper up tomorrow morning. Thank you very much. Click. An hour and a half later, I get to the meeting. The police is there. They changed it up. I ended up getting arrested for asking too many questions at a public meeting. Nine months later, I was acquitted. And then I turned around and sued the town because they got, ended up getting the town to facilitate it. The company did, and so did the NRC. And so I knew that it was just a matter of time because a couple months before that, my brake lines had been cut, all four of them. On your car? On my car. I could never say with definite who did it, but I had never had any problems before. In November of 1993, I spoke to Bill Silkwood, as in Karen Silkwood's father. Because I knew at that particular point, after that arrest, they were going to keep coming after me. They had the police following me and stopping me, checking my registration, checking my insurance and everything. You know, I had a hard way to go because the community was behind the government at the time. So I called Bill Silkwood. I, I told him what my plight was. He said, you need to talk to an attorney. I says, well, could you tell me who it was that was representing Karen that she was due to meet? And he said, that's Steve Walker. He had changed his name because he didn't want the notoriety in the movie. He gave me Steve's number. I called Steve up. He was familiar with Numek. He said, do you have any documents? I said, yeah, how many do you want? He said, how many do you have? I said, thousands at this point. And he says, well, just give me some of the most demonstrative evidence. I said, okay. I said, do you want any videotape? He said, he started laughing. He said, you, you got videotaped too? I said, yeah, I videotaped. He said, send it on. I sent it overnight express. He was in my living room three days later. On June the 6th, 1994, that first federal civil action was filed. So you filed your first federal action against Babcock and Wilcox and Atlantic Richfield Corporation in 1994. How far did that get and what did you have to do to follow up on it? Well, that case took 14 years. However, Fred Barron, who was the lead attorney, when it came to trial in 1998, of 200 people who were on, there was uh, eight people who were the first test plaintiffs. That the case, when it went to trial of the first eight test plaintiffs, the jury awarded those people $37.6 million. And the most important thing out of a federal civil action is discovery, because there came the mother load of documents right there that had never seen the light of day before. They were released to my attorney, and my attorney gave them all to me as well. And this is the same attorney as was Karen Silkwood's attorney? He was one of Karen Silkwood's attorneys, yes. Incredible. So with this first finding, was there any kind of resolution for the case, or did this just open up additional channels? That case was finally settled in two parts 2007, uh, Atlantic Richfield bailed on Babcock and Wilcox, and they settled. 
and Babcock and Wilcox finally settled in 2009. The overall settlements were approximately $92 million. Who was it who received that $92 million? People in the community who had either buried their children, buried their husbands or wives, or who had cancers that were survivors. These were not workers. What has since happened to take care of the workers? All the documents that I was finding regarding the workers at the document room that the NRC had set up, I was completely shocked with how they just openly, they didn't redact any of the information on the workers. I mean, their dates of birth, their social security numbers, everything was just out there. I was getting these documents and uh, putting them aside because I knew the suffering. I had actually seen and knew of several cases where the company had let some of the workers go that were getting sick, and they didn't have any insurance, nothing. They ended up losing their homes. It was just a damn shame what was happening here. What are the various settlements that have taken place? Because I know that as of a few weeks ago, there was an ultimate finding about the cleanup taking place. Talk us through where the different cases were and what was achieved by each one of them. On the civil end, of course, there was the first federal civil action that I spearheaded, 14 years, $92 million to 200 plaintiffs. In 2010, I spearheaded a second federal civil action suit. That's an appeal right now, so that's still not settled. On the regulatory end, I had a hearing with the Atomic Safety and Licensing Board panel. It was a paper hearing on the Parks Township nuclear site because the waste dump came under their operations license at that time, and they were planning on splitting the license. And I knew if they split the license, they were going to leave us in perpetuity with the waste, and that's exactly what they had tried to do. That I didn't win, but I still was able to get some of the NRC and the officials at BNW and ARCO on the record with affidavits that later came back in federal civil actions to bite them. At the same time, our sewage authority was contaminated. They had a lagoon over there, and it was contaminated with plutonium, daughter product, americium-241. But the NRC kept saying that it was just minute amounts, and I kept telling them to go deeper. They didn't want to go deeper. I would just push it. And so the NRC's resolve for this, they had an unannounced meeting at an archery place outside of the area, and I found out about it. They were actually going to give a sewage authority a nuclear license to just leave it there. In other words, name it a nuclear waste site and that would give it permission and it wouldn't have no. to be cleaned up? No, they would just give a nuclear license for it to be there, period. So when I found out about this meeting, I got there and they had called it a meeting. But then at the meeting, they tried to do a disco move of going straight into a hearing that would have been unannounced. And I shut it down. I came close to kicking tables over that night. And then they stopped. And then I went to the DEP secretary, who was Katie McGinty. She was in Clinton's White House. She headed up CEQ one time. The uh, Council on Environmental Quality, that office is in the White House. I met with Secretary McGinty in 2007. Pennsylvania had a specific law. It was Act 107 and specifically Section 104 that stated any special nuclear material in any amounts, any quantities must go to a licensed facility. So Secretary McGinty reversed 
the decision that DEP had been taking, which was a wrong-headed decision for years, the, the wrong-headed decision was to be in compliance with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, either giving them a nuclear license or having it merely sent to municipal landfills where we take our household trash to so somebody else could get it. Kicking it down the road, anything for the company not to have to pay what they should be paying for. Okay, so you had the meeting with her and she reversed the decision. What was the ruling or what was the decision that came out? That it had to be cleaned up and it got cleaned up. That uh, was actually a, a really good success. Let's get clear on something. How many settlements have there been in this case? How many major rulings have there had to be to get to the point where now the Army Corps of Engineers is going to do the cleanup in Park Township? Okay, well, the Army Corps of Engineers in Parks Township is one thing. One has to understand that NUMEC was a multi-headed, multi-faceted beast here. NUMEC, Atlantic Richville Corporation, Babcock and Wilcox. You had the Apollo site. That was a separate thing. But from the Apollo site, then you had the contamination of the river and whatever went into the sewage authority. And, of course, the sewage authority was another thing because that was accumulation of both the Apollo and the park site. Now, the Apollo decommissioning, that got done. Then you had the plutonium facility, Okay, and the operations was one thing, and then you had the burials, the what I've been dealing with with the Corps of Engineers, and then you had the federal civil actions and the workers. So I was juggling and doing all these things at one time. And who did you have as support on this? Were you part of an organization? Was this a crew of people, a committee of people? No, I did this myself, and thank God I was able to get probably the best environmental attorney in the country, the attorneys, uh, Steve Walker, the late Fred Barron, and his team, oh my goodness, Kay Reeves, Alicia Butler, Michael Kasky, who's down in Texas. So with all of these settlements, as of a few weeks ago, the ruling came out that the cleanup is going to take place through the Army Corps of Engineers. Is that the FOOSRAP program? It is. So FOOSRAP is going to be doing the cleanup of Parks Township. That's correct. What is still on the horizon for this site? Or is it finally the opportunity for you to lay the cudgel down? No, I wish I could lay it down. But you see, the SLDA, the waste dump, was separated from the original license of the operations site. And the waste dump area that is fenced in now is about 44.5 acres. However, the original deeded licensed property at the time the operations were intact and the burials took place was 193 acres. And I can tell you, they buried on just about every inch of that property. I think it's going to come in two parts. The Corps of Engineers will work on the SLDA. And I am looking to get uh, the EPA with the areas outside of the SLDA. I do not want to muddy the waters with what I had to fight for and what's been fought for with respect to the SLDA. Just clarify for me, SLDA? The shallow land disposal area, and that's the $350 million plus cleanup of the 44.5 acres. That's what's going to be cleaned up under FOOSRAP. 
That's correct. Where are you now in terms of your health? Well, every day above ground is a good day. I'm still vertical sucking air on my end, so I guess I'm okay. I still have another brain tumor. You know, I'm to the point now, because I've been through so much. I mean, I've had my head opened up twice for one brain tumor. I still have another brain tumor. I've had uterine cancer. Those are the things I attribute to being exposed by the industry. That's a side of physical problems I've dealt with when I was in the Navy. I'm basically with the mindset now that I don't even want to go to a doctor. I'm just ready to take whatever comes. But I don't want to hear any bad news because I have enough to fight right now. Here's the one thing I've always believed. The truth may sometimes stand alone, but it always stands and people will get behind it when they know it. I understand that you have been in contact through the years with the moms from the Westlake area in North St. Louis and been certainly a source of information and advice to them. They are wonderful down there. And, uh, you know, I think it's our duty as activists for whatever knowledge we have, because knowledge is power. I haven't been able to go down there, and I, I really hope in the spring to get down to Bridgeton or Westlake area to meet some of these fantastic people. And meeting over Facebook and just feeling, I can feel their yearn, their craving for some justice, for somebody to do something down there. They know they're in a cesspool. I know that in the interviews and the other talking that I've done with Karen Nickel and with Dawn Chapman from the Westlake Moms, that you have been a resource to them and someone who has been able to support them, not only with information, but with the kind of emotional support that one needs in dealing with nuclear. You know, it's, it's a lot that they're taking on. There's a lot of people that are out, and that's fantastic. Everybody should be out. I'm appalled at the local governments right on up to the governor's office. I'm appalled at the way that the people have just been dismissed with their concerns. Whatever I can do, whatever resources I have, whether it's support, whether it's documents, whatever it is, I'm going to try to help them. Because those are my brothers and sisters, not only there, but Irwin, Tennessee, out in California, up in Canada, all over the place. We have a lot of bridge-making that we've done as activists across this country. Patty, we wish you every health, every blessing, every support possible. And truly, you are an example of what a single, motivated, focused individual can do in battling nuclear. When we can come together with you and with people like you all over, we can succeed. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes focus, it takes stamina, but we can do this. And you are a living example of that. Thank you, Libby. And I'll tell you what, what you do is an enormous resource for people and getting that information disseminated. And I thank you very, very much. That was Patty Amina. Our interview was recorded in January of 2016 for Nuclear Hot Seat number 239. Since that time, there have been further developments in the situation with the cleanup and compensation for plaintiffs against the NUMEC facility. We will have an update on that portion of the story for you in the coming weeks. Activist shout out!
Leona Morgan of the Diné, otherwise known as Navajo people, won the Jean Guyuna Social Justice Spirit Award for her work as a community organizer and activist challenging nuclear colonialism, concentrating on environmental justice issues affecting indigenous people in the Southwest. Since 2007, she has worked specifically on uranium mining issues and in recent years broadened that focus to all nuclear issues. In 2014, Morgan co-founded Diné No Nukes, an initiative to address impacts from all stages of the nuclear fuel chain with specific focus on the traditional Diné homelands. Also in 2014, a busy year for her, Morgan co-founded the Radiation Monitoring Project, which is a national collaboration to bring impacted communities the tools and knowledge to do citizen radiation monitoring. In 2016, she helped to launch the Nuclear Issues Study Group, an Albuquerque-based endeavor working to protect New Mexico from all things nuclear, as well as the Hall No campaign, challenging the transport of uranium ore through Western Navajo Nation. Great that you're acknowledged, Leona, and we look forward to finding out what you're going to be up to in the coming years. A big congratulations also to veteran no-nukes activist Harvey Wasserman for landing a coveted drive-time slot on L.A.'s Pacifica station, KPFK. This is for his show, California Solartopia. Harvey is as anti-nuke as they come. He's actually credited with coining the term no-nukes. And he's also pro-alternatives to solve our energy's problems. So Harvey is up and running every week at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time on Fridays, along with posting the program online. When we get the link, we'll have it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 326. And Harvey is also keeping his podcast, Solartopia, and I'll have a link to the episode where he interviewed me, Paul Gunter, and Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear on nukes and hurricanes. So, mazel tov, Harvey, and yes, let's create a non-nuclear solar Los Angeles and then everywhere else, ASAP, okay? Here's today's final thought. The show must go on, but I must get away. So by the time you hear this nuclear hot seat, I will be offline, off-grid, and in full recovery mode somewhere in nature. I believe that those of us who defend the Earth, especially from the relentless nuclear menace, need to emotionally and spiritually detox from the intensity of the information that we deal with every day. So I plan to wander in the woods, hug a tree, more than one probably, apologize to the Earth, and do my best to de-stress from the stresses of hurricane fire and rain from the past three weeks. I figure it's a safe bet that all these issues will still be here upon my return. After all, the thing about nuclear is that it's not about to go away. With plutonium having a half-life of 24,000 years, I'm pretty sure that the whole darn mess will still be here when I get back next week. Hopefully, at that point, I will be feeling much better and the situation won't be any worse. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 19, 2017. 
Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, capecodtimes.com, and ace reporter Christine Legere, mainichi.jp, ucsusa.org, triblive.com, vice.com, the self-hating cubicle drones at World Nuclear News who traded their souls for a paycheck because they didn't have the guts to pursue their own writing dreams, and that's why they write for World Nuclear News. The U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, and a shout-out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers who show your love for this planet by being the kick-ass supporters of nuclear awareness that you are. You guys rock. Seriously. Thanks for gathering at Nuclear Hot Seat's blog site on Facebook and also the podcast site on Facebook. Somehow or another, we've got two pages. Feel free to visit both. Be sure to stop by, click like, post, share, and link. If you know of a broadcast station in your area that would be interested in joining the growing list of broadcast affiliates carrying Nuclear Hot Seat over public airwaves, have them contact us by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. We are copyright 2017 Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. A reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, or possibly in your own backyard, and have them delivered with as much honesty and humor as possible, take a moment to send a donation to nuclearhotseat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you once again that the last thing any anti-nuclear activist ever wants to be able to say is, I told you so. There, you've all had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.